privilege to be among you and to address you, excellencies and reverend fathers, my colleagues in this great work for life and family and faith. I want to first start by introducing a book from which I've taken many of the reflections. Had Gabriele Kubi from Germany uh, been able to be here, she would be giving this talk. And uh, I would encourage you very much to uh, get this book if you're able to, The Global Sexual Revolution, Destruction of Freedom in the Name of Freedom by uh, Gabriele Kubi, uh, forward by Robert Spemann, who many of you know, and uh, LifeSite helped to uh, promote the book as well. So, under the guise of fighting homophobia, sex education, comprehensive sex education, freedom of choice and LGBT rights and non-discrimination, we are experiencing the imposition of gender ideology, an ideology that is asserted all over the world with religious fervor. Unlike the Christian faith, however, it is imposed and not proposed. It is the intellectual underpinning of the LGBT movement or the homosexual movement, if you will. It proposes that a person's sex is not biologically determined, but that it was historically socially constructed, and now with a new freedom we should all have the choice to determine our own sex or gender. It's a belief system that denies bodily reality and forbids even the consideration of risk factors associated with aberrant sexuality. It employs the education system national and international legislation, attacks on religion and the church in an effort to achieve total adherence. To demonstrate how ubiquitous is the new faith, you may note there are now 71 genders to choose from when you sign up to Facebook, the most popular social media outlet in the world with over one billion active users. That's one in seven people on the planet. But as Gabriela Kubi would say, there are much more dire implications since the ideology has been taken up by governments and is being written into the legal codes all over the Western world. She posits that now that gender theory has been widely accepted, the gender ideologues insist that, and I quote, society must not only tolerate, but positively accept any kind of sexual orientation. This theology, or this ideology, I would posit, is profoundly religious, with profound religious implications. As Pope Francis has repeatedly said, the pushing of gender theory is a type of ideological colonization where the Hitler youth, or excuse me, like the Hitler youth, and that's Pope Francis's own comparison, they come to impose their doctrine. Pope Benedict XVI explained the profound falsehood 
of gender theory and the anthropological revolution contained within it. He described gender theory as people disputing the idea that they have a nature given by their bodily identity that serves as a defining element of the human being. Rather than acknowledging that God created people, male and female, the theory contends that these are social constructs and we now may decide for ourselves. Continuing quoting from Pope Benedict, when the freedom to be creative becomes the freedom to create oneself, then necessarily the maker himself is denied and ultimately man too is stripped of his dignity as a creature of God, as the image of God at the core of his being. And Benedict concluded, the defense of the family is about man himself, and it becomes clear that when God is denied, human dignity also disappears. As the Croatian bishops explained it, man under a gradually increasing impression of his own power and convinced that there is no natural preset order of things, increasingly began to put himself in the place of God and claim a role for himself, omnipotent creator and legislator, whose freedom is absolute. I would contend, with good reason, that this ideology, this new religion, if you will, this dogma, has a satanic origin. It was philosopher Peter Kreeft who observed that Almost the whole of the culture war is centered on the deformation of the conjugal union. Abortion, same-sex marriage, contraception, adultery, pornography, promiscuity, sex education, divorce, homosexuality, in vitro fertilization, embryonic stem cell research are all related to sexuality. And in answer to why this should be the case, two quotes attributed to the Blessed Virgin Mary by the children of Fatima are important. The first of those, of course, was mentioned by Dr. De Mattei, and that is the one by, or given to us by Blessed Yacinta Marto, uh, who said, more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than for any other reason. And the second one is an interesting one. It is one that was sent by letter from Sister Lucia to Cardinal Cafara. And uh, she wrote that Our Lady told her that, and I quote, the final battle between the Lord and the reign of Satan will be about marriage and the family. I'll read it again. Our Lady told her, said Sister Lucia, in a letter to Cardinal Cafara, that the final battle between the Lord and the reign of Satan will be about marriage and the family. Additionally, Pope John Paul II noted in Theology of the Body, that the sacred union of a man and woman in marriage, the conjugal union, is a prime image stamped throughout all mankind of the Trinitarian relationship to which we're all called in the afterlife. The fathers of the church describe the father and the son giving themselves wholly to one another in love, and that full giving of themselves is the person of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, in Ephesians, Paul makes reference to what sounds to everyone like the conjugal union where he expresses that a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And then he says, but I refer to the relationship of Christ to his church. So here is this image which God himself has ordained to be the example of the Trinitarian relationship of the relationship between Christ and his church. And then we have Satan's role to make us avoid that relationship, make us avoid that truth. And so his primary objective being to steer mankind away from heaven and Christ, he has made his primary focus of attack to distort the most prominent images of the Trinitarian relationship to which we're called and distort the image of Christ's own relationship with his church. As I said in the beginning, this new religion is imposed rather than proposed. Gabriele Kubi uh, expresses it this way, and I quote, a new totalitarianism, totalitarianism is developing under the cloak of sexual freedom. The destruction of the family uproots every single human being. We have become atomized human beings who can be manipulated to do anything. As recently as last month, Pope Francis described this as an educated or polite persecution. And I'm going to read at length from his homily that spoke to this, this fact. He said, this educated or polite persecution seeks to restrict rights to freedom of religion and conscientious objection. In his own characteristic style, Pope Francis said this is an educated persecution. And then uh, with pointedness, he said, which is not, he said, not much is being said about it, but he says it comes cross-dressed as culture, cross-dressed as modernity, cross-dressed as progress. And of course, that has all sorts of implications. He said it targets individuals, and I quote, for wanting to have and manifest the values of a son of God. It's a persecution, he said, that robs man of his freedom, even from conscientious objection. And I continue to quote from Pope Francis, we see every day that the powerful countries create laws that force us to go through this path. A nation that doesn't follow these modern laws, these cultures, or that at least doesn't want to have them in its laws, is accused and is politely persecuted. He added these words, that he spoke also at the same time of martyrdom and, and of many Christians being martyred all over the world. He said the martyrdom and the educated persecution both have a boss Jesus named him the prince of this world, said Pope Francis. And when the powers want to impose attitudes, laws against the dignity of the Son of God, they persecute and go against the Creator, against God. It is the great apostasy. End quote. We also have the results of the persecution. Across North America and Western Europe, for the last 20 years, we have seen a laundry list of those persecuted. And I'll go through it really quickly. We have bakers, wedding photographers, florists, professors, counselors, media personalities, professional sports players, bed and breakfast owners, mayors, printers, politicians, foster parents, fire chiefs, magistrates, police, and the list could go on and on. All fined, some losing their jobs and livelihoods, 
Why? For criticizing homosexuality or homosexual marriage. The persecution was directed squarely at religious leaders, even in the beginning. Back in 2003, Swedish pastor Ake Green gave a sermon on homosexuality, which if you read it, you will see is not hateful, but he was charged with a hate crime. And he was sentenced to prison. He appealed the ruling. Now, this is 2003 when it began. He appealed it, and it took two years of being under a condemnation, a jail sentence, uh, for this to get overturned. It first was overturned in, I think, the, their superior court, and then it was <laughs> appealed again uh, by the prosecution to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, didn't quite overturn it. It acquitted him, but it did say he was guilty. But said that the European courts wouldn't hold it up, so therefore they were going to let it go. That same kind of intimidation, oh, you'd think, oh, it's Sweden, come on, of course, naturally it was Sweden. No, I'm going to tell you it happens also in the most conservative part. A lot, there's a lot of Europeans in the room, and Europeans often will look to the United States as the bastion of conservatism. And even those in the United States will look to certain states in the South as the bastion still of conservatism within the United States. So let's pick on one of the most conservative states in the United States, Texas, and see what happened there. In 2014 in Texas, you had the same intimidation tactics that went on against Pastor Aka Green. You had five pastors asked by the openly lesbian mayor of Houston to submit uh, their she actually had a subpoena demanding that they turn over any sermons dealing with homosexuality and gender identity. And if they failed to comply, they would be held in contempt of court. In Canada, we had two bishops taken to human rights commissions over their stances in defense of traditional Catholic teaching on homosexuality. Also, from the beginning, schools were a target for this re-education program, or you might call it the evangelization program of this new religion. Even Catholic and private schools are not exempt. A Canadian Catholic bishop was threatened with denial of Catholic school funding if he did not remove teaching against homosexual acts from the religious education classes. And sadly, he acquiesced. Other bishops not only in North America, but all over Europe, have succumbed or given in voluntarily to pressures of various kinds and have permitted comprehensive sex education, homosexual clubs, and other indoctrination programs in their own Catholic schools. Parents' rights also fall victim to the new ideology. In various cities across North America and Europe, parents are forbidden from withdrawing their children from comprehensive sex education classes, which are explicitly pro-homosexual and pro-abortion and more. Two provinces in Canada have proposed that even homeschooling parents are not permitted to teach against homosexual sex. In Quebec, that legislation was passed, and in Alberta, it was proposed and then fought and defeated. In Germany, however, most of you know that homeschooling is already illegal and has been since Nazi times. But there, if you look into the cases, what do you find? You find parents who want to protect their children from indoctrination into this new religion, uh, being the ones having not only their children taken from them, but also them put, or sometimes put into jail as well as threatened with jail. 
So I must also tell you now a very sad thing. The genuflection or bowing to the new altar. While many bishops around the world have been courageous, like Belgian primate emeritus, Archbishop Andre Joseph Lennard, who many of you know and love, who faced this persecution, even physical assault, over and over again for staying true to the church's loving teachings on the sanctity of marriage and the proper use of the sexual act. One quick aside, the most beautiful thing, after getting pied in the face so many times, many of you will have seen the, the photos because all the world's press was there because he was attacked by Femen, the women who, who disrobe and therefore get all the media attention in the world and normally are very successful. This time they attacked him on stage, they disrobed and they took holy water bottles and whipped the water at him. And the most amazing thing happened. This holy man reacted this way. He put his head down, folded his hands, closed his eyes and prayed. And all of the world's media saw that this heroic man was praying for his persecutors every bit as much as our Lord's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Unfortunately, however, there are many of our own shepherds who do not follow in this heroic example, this example of Christ. In December last year, there was a flyer bearing the stamp of the German Bishops' Conference that was published in which gender mainstreaming was described as if it were harmless. And I'll quote from it. They described gender mainstream, mainstreaming as, quote, a political strategy which wants to contribute to the equality of opportunity between women and men. That, when our Holy Fathers, the last three at least, have condemned this as an absolute assault on God himself. In most dioceses throughout the whole of the Western world, all of you in Europe will have experienced this, and all of us in America have as well, even in the conservative diocese, you will always find a gay parish. How can it be that in almost every diocese there's a gay parish? A gay parish where everybody knows you will never hear the hard truths which are said in love about the harm that this behavior causes you, both physically and eternally. But we have them in our parishes, in our dioceses nonetheless. But I'm saddest to tell you about the genuflection to this new altar that happened from the Vatican itself. The situation revolves around the Pope's visit to America last September. And an amazing thing happened there. America has been undergoing this persecution I've told you about for a long time now. Uh, it's become, over the last couple of years, incredibly intense. So intense that there's a Kentucky clerk by the name of Kim Davis, who's Christian. She was an evangelical Christian, and she refused to sign off on marriage licenses for homosexual couples because she said, that's against the scriptures. That's against my belief in Jesus Christ. 
She's a very simple woman. But she said she couldn't do it. They told her she has to resign. Well, she refused to resign. She's an elected official. So they jailed her. She's a mom. She's got kids and a husband. And they jailed her. So Pope Francis came shortly thereafter. And if you remember, the speeches in America were bereft of mentioning of abortion and things that we were hoping for, particularly because he was going to Congress on a day that they were going to vote for a, a, a legislation uh, on uh, abortion funding, and there was no mention. But we learned afterward that the Pope had actually met with Kim Davis and thanked her for her courage and told her to keep going, to stay strong. I can't tell you how amazing that was. It was so incredible that pastors, Protestant pastors, wrote about how amazing it was. And then came the worst thing I think I've ever seen in this regard. The media, of course, took it up and said how horrible this was. Except something really, really strange happened, and I'll give you the facts of the case as closely as I can. Vatican spokesman, Father Ciro Benedettini, told ABC News, and I quote, the Vatican does not confirm the meeting, nor does it deny the meeting. There will be no further information given, end quote. So the media went to ask. It went to ask for good reason. You see, every time someone meets with the Holy Father, there's photos. You guys have all been here for a long time. You know that if you shake hands with the Holy Father, his press corps is right there taking photos, and you go buy them over there. That happens regularly. Except this time, the photographers didn't release the photos. That was a purposeful decision not to release the photos. And then this weird statement of not willing to confirm nor deny the meeting, and no more will be given. So of course, what happened was the media in America loves this stuff. They've been persecuting Kim Davis now for months on end. They've jailed her already. And you have this horrible situation, and it continues. So then the non-response from the Vatican, the no pictures, fuels in the media that Kim Davis is lying for her own ends. She made it up. And this is on the national media. So you then had, finally, an admission. The Vatican admitted that it had met, that the Holy Father had indeed met with Kim Davis. Except this is how they did it. English language attaché for the Vatican press office, Father Thomas Rosica, described what he labeled as the negative impact of the Pope's meeting with Davis and suggested that the Pope may not have been properly briefed before the meeting. Then there was an official Vatican press release, which you can look up, it's online still, um, overtly distancing the Holy Father from Kim Davis. In fact, Father Lombardi said, and I'll quote, that he, he actually implied it directly that it wasn't a real audience 
And then he said, I quote, the meeting should not be considered a form of support of her position in all its particular and complex aspects. And while that may be absolutely true, everybody reads that as, we don't support her. The finities about, in its particular complex aspects, is lost. Father Lombardi's statement, in fact, said this, and I quote, this is a direct quote, and please go look it up because it's so incredible. What I'm going to tell you is so incredible that you should look it up because you're going to need to verify it. The only real audience granted by the Pope at the nunciature was with one of his former students and his family. So the only real audience granted by the Pope at the nunciature was with one of his former students and his family. So who was this former student and his family? Well, it was his former student, Yayo Grassi, who, by the way, is a practicing homosexual, who, by the way, brought his partner, his homosexual partner, with him to meet the Pope. And, by the way, there was photos and even a video. And in the video, you can watch Pope Francis embracing Yayo Grassi, Yayo Grassi's mom, oh, and also Yayo Grassi's homosexual partner. Grassi went on to tell CNN that the Pope himself arranged the meeting with a personal phone call weeks prior to his visit. In contrast, by the way, Father Rosica had said that the Pope's meeting with Davis was planned by the nuncio and, uh, you know, they didn't know. Other Vatican sources claimed that various media, uh, to various media that the Pope was blindsided by the meeting with Davis, claiming the meeting was unknown to the Vatican and also to the U.S. Bishop Conference, which would have opposed the meeting, according to a CBS source in the Vatican. So while the Holy Father, in fact, did meet with Davis and did encourage her, also actually on the plane ride home commended religious freedom, the Vatican press office turned what should have been the rejection of the false god of sexual revolution into a genuflection at the altar of political correctness, or God forbid, the ideology itself. But I want also to talk to you about a new frontier in this war, this propagation of this new faith, this imposition of this new faith that has opened up especially in America, of late. And it's something that we're actually used to in a different context. Most of us here are pro-life leaders. Many of us have been involved at the United Nations. And in the United Nations, we have seen for the past 20 years the use of financial penalty to force countries to accept these agendas. We've seen the United Nations, Europe, North America, use conditioning aid money to poor countries on the acceptance of contraception, abortion, and homosexuality. I spoke with Bishop Badejo in Nigeria, who tells me honestly that the US uh, would not help with their fight with Boko Haram because of their refusal to accept same-sex marriage. If you remember, Boko Haram was the kidnapping of all those girls. How could that not 
create a situation where anybody would do anything to help them. It's little girls being taken away and raped, by the way. Yet, in comes the ideology, a merciless imposition. Of late, however, we have seen the use of these same economic tactics, uh, not on an international level, but on a national level. We have seen in the United States large corporations effectively usurping democracy by strong-arming elected officials into betraying the people they represent with the threat of financial ruin. And the worst part is it's been totally effective. It was foretold, actually. Those paying attention to the news would have known it but no one has their nose to the grind like this. But it was predicted in 2005, Tim Sweeney, who is a major funder of homosexual groups, he's a grant maker for LGBT things, he actually spoke at a conference of this sort. And he said, and this is a direct quote, we are at a crossroads where the choices we, will, we make will mean we will fight religious exemptions for two or three years, or have a protracted 20-year struggle on our hands. And he made that comment in the Out and Equal Workplace Advocates Executive Forum held in San Francisco. And they decided to take up the torch to end it in two or three years. Because what we've seen now has been incredible. There's been such corporate financial pressure. It's been an explosion in the last number of months to basically a monster threat to democracy, even regarded by some liberals as a concerning development. Even the descriptions of the situation from the media who cheer these developments sound like a horror novel. I want to read you a description of what happened from the New Yorker magazine of April 25th, this last month. So it said, last month, executives at more than 80 companies, that's eight zero companies, including Apple, Pfizer, Microsoft, and Marriott, signed a public letter to the governor of North Carolina urging him to repeal the state's new law protecting religious freedom. It, it, that's the law. I just added protecting religious freedom. So that's um, Lionsgate Studio, which is a major film studio, uh, is moving production of a new sitcom out of the state. Deutsche Bank canceled plans to create new jobs there. PayPal has canceled plans for a global operations center there. In Mississippi, General Electric, Pepsi, Dow, and others attacked the law there as bad for our employees and bad for business. Disney said that it would stop making movies in Georgia, which has become a major venue for film production if the governor signed the bill. Something similar happened last year in Indiana after the state passed a religious freedom law allowing businesses to discriminate against LGBT customers and employees. At least a dozen businesses, business conventions relocated. And then listen to the same paper describing the effect. A little corporate muscle flexing can work wonders, it turns out. Last month, Georgia's governor vetoed its religious freedom bill, implicitly acknowledging that the state could not afford to lose Disney's business. And South Dakota's governor, citing opposition from Citigroup and Wells Fargo, voted a law 
that would have required people to use the bathrooms that corresponded to their biological sex vetoed a law that would have required people to use the bathrooms of their biological sex. Ooh, that's terrible. Last year, Indiana and Arkansas amended their religious freedom bills after a corporate backlash led in Arkansas by Walmart. These are the biggest corporations in the United States, and they are playing the same economic blackmail games that we have played internationally. And we've seen now this economic blackmail go from an international level to a national level. And as I mentioned earlier when I gave the laundry list of persecutions, we've also seen that it's begun to take an effect toward at certain individuals. I would suggest, and uh, it might be somewhat controversial, but I would suggest that not too long from now, we will see that same pressure applied to each and every individual. In fact, such a development was actually predicted in the scriptures. If you read in Revelations or the Apocalypse, uh, there's some very interesting passages in chapter 13 and 14. They speak of a mark of the beast. And I'll just read the passages to you. I'm reading from 13 and 14 uh, chapters, chapter 13 and 14 chapter, a few verses from each. Speaking of the beast, and he shall make all, both little and great, rich and poor, free men and bondmen, to have a character in their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no man may buy or sell except he that has the character or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Then from chapter 14. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man shall adore the beast and his image and receive his character in his forehead or his hand, he shall drink the cup of his wrath, meaning God's wrath, and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the sight of the holy angels and the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torments shall ascend up forever and ever. Neither have they rest day nor night who have adored the beast and his image and whoever received the character mm. of his name. There's something very interesting about that passage because Having some mark on your forehead or on your hand that has to do with buying and selling is not evil, and it's definitely not something that's going to lead to your eternal damnation. However, if you had to sell your soul to get it, then you could see that that might be the case. And you know what's interesting about that? Why not make sure that those we're allowing to participate in buying and selling in societies where are responsible citizens? And why not, therefore, make them sign on to some kind of human rights declaration that they're going to accept proper human rights and just respect them? That makes sense. That's completely logical. Except for the fact that we know for 20 years the ideologues have been pushing in every human rights document at the United Nations these same ideological requirements. And they've had partial successes and increasing successes with every new UN conference. The purveyors of the new religion have achieved a level of global saturation in the developed world which seems ready to demand from each and every citizen adherence to their dogmas. 
With false love and false mercy, a universal salvation is promised to all those who lovingly accept others' sexual lifestyles without discrimination and bigotry. Many have wondered and said aloud how, when the number of persons with tendencies, such tendencies, form such a small minority of the population, they can have achieved an acceptance of their really deviant sexual lifestyles. And it's almost a universal requirement to accept this. Many people have asked, how can this be? There's, it's really, really small percentage. Well, think about this. With most of the world engaged in aberrant sexual behavior, whether that be pornography or contraception, the link to protecting a sexual aberration uh, on the part of homosexuals becomes clear. One cannot allow for the condemnation of one sexual perversion when he himself is engaged in another. Rather, all should be protected and accepted. The coming years will see an increase in persecution that I've described thus far. There is an increasing hatred for those who dare to dissent from the dogmas of the new religion coming from the general public, which has been taught that most of the world's problems are due to those unwilling to embrace love and tolerance. You can see that hatred in what happened to Kim Davis. You can see that hatred after she got out of jail, being separated from her families. The condemnations of her, you could read on comments in the public newspapers, was unbelievable. The filth, the hatred, the willingness to harm her physically and her family. These are from regular Joe Americans, and it's not a small minority of them. In fact, when we experienced the Indiana thing that I spoke of earlier, there was a, 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 again, it was against the religious freedom bill. If you can imagine, it's a bill to, after same-sex marriage is passed, to protect pastors and things from not having to preach in their own churches about it, from b businesses being able to say, no, we won't actually do same-sex weddings here, even though we hold weddings here because we're Christian. Uh, photographers, uh, wedding photographers saying, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't support you in that same-sex marriage because we're Christians. Those kinds of things is what the law wanted to protect. And there was such a hue and cry that the public was going crazy. One interview with a pizza joint created a firestorm. It was a place called Memories Pizza. And uh, the owners were asked if they would cater a gay wedding, and they said, no, we're Christians. You know what was said on social media. In fact, it was a local high school coach said, who's going to come with me and burn down Memories Pizza? The family that runs Memories Pizza was so scared, they shut the restaurant. Two days later, they moved out of their home. They were scared for their lives. The hatred is real. And the persecution is real. And I believe it's going to get much worse. You know, when you consider that hatred, it's instructive to remember something. In Revelation, again, in chapter 11, there's a really neat description of what they call the two end-time prophets. Uh, these are the two end-time prophets who run around during the time of Antichrist, and nearing the end of Antichrist's own reign, he sort of catches them and kills them. But then the scriptures say something very interesting about them. It says that their bodies will lie in the streets for three days, and that everyone around the world sees them 
and rejoices and actually exchanges gifts because they're so happy that they're dead because these two, and I'll quote, this is because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. How did they torment them? They didn't go around beating people up. It does say they breathed fire out of their mouths to consume their enemies, but I'm sure that fire didn't touch all of them. But a certain fire did. The fire of the pricking of conscience. You see, natural law is written on our hearts. It's indelibly inscribed in us. At some point, we still feel guilty. I lived on the other side in a unhealthy sexual lifestyle for part of my life, so I know this firsthand. I wasn't into homosexuality, but it doesn't matter. All sexual aberration does the same thing. And inside, you're guilty. But you always try and externalize your guilt. For me, I heaped it on my dad, who was a holy man. And there was an anger there, because I felt he's making me feel guilty. In the conclusion of uh, her book, uh, Gabriela Kubi writes about this matter of conscience as well. She says, what does a culture do when it no longer has a way of cleansing guilt because it has made men their own gods? It must silence the conscience in the vain hope that the inner peace will be found. She highlights three methods for this silencing of conscience. She says, one, create ideologies that make sin appear good. Two, drag everyone into the sin. And three, defame, shun, and persecute everyone who gives voice to the conscience. Let me conclude by saying there remains hope. Indeed, with faith and charity. Cardinal Kafara's letter that he got from Sister Lucia the one that told him of the final battle between our Lord and Satan being around marriage and the family, also had another part to it. She said, do not be afraid. Doesn't that ring back to a certain Holy Father that we remember dearly? Do not be afraid. She said, because anyone who works for the sanctity of marriage and the family and don't get confused about where I'm going, because she said, anyone who works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be fought and opposed in every way, because this is the decisive issue. But she added, Our Lady has already crushed its head. The battle is indeed our Lord's, and he has already won. We are on the winning team despite what the situation may look like. Ours is but to do our best to carry out the will of God in our lives and accept, even with thanks, all the circumstances that he sends us. Just as the passion brings Easter and the tougher the times that we experience, the greater good God will bring from them. He never gives us more than we can bear, the scriptures tell us. And they also say that all things work for good for those who love him. And I'm going to leave you with the words of Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, which he gave in his Easter homily in 2012. Life is stronger than death. Good 
is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hate. And truth is stronger than lies. God bless you.